invite you to take your Bibles this, turn, this morning and turn to Isaiah 9, a tremendous song for us to finish on, Crown Him Lord of All, as that's the direction we're going with our text this morning. Last week we were in Isaiah 9, verse 2, and we spoke of the redemption from guilt, from shame, from condemnation that was realized through Jesus Christ beginning in the manger and that work being finished on the cross. I admit that writing this sermon this morning and, and even last week's sermon uh, was a bit difficult this year. Christmas, at least in the church, is intended to be a remembrance. It's intended to be a legacy of the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. It's a remembrance of the beginning, which indeed was important. We talked this morning about, uh, right before the Schmidt sang, O Holy Night, about the fact that the night was holy, not necessarily in and of itself, but because of the Holy One who was in the manger. And yet the night as it, as it stands, the, the night where Jesus was born, is significant only as far as it leads to the end results of His great work. At Legacy Baptist Church, we often say in regard to salvation how the end is, is, is more important in many ways than the beginning. We talk about how at the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, this was not really the end of anything in truth. It is only the beginning. When one of our children accepts Jesus Christ, uh, it's not the end of the work as a parent. In fact, in many ways, it's only the beginning of the work as a parent. Now, now that they've accepted Christ, now you can actually start working on them, right? Now, now you can start to train them. Now you can start to guide them into proper motivation. Now you can start to lead them into Christian maturity. Salvation is not the end. It's, it's the beginning. It's a benchmark by all, by all accounts, but it only marks the beginning of a, of a long journey, of a lifelong journey. It's when the work truly begins. So too it is with Christ. His beginning is only significant as far as it leads to the end. Last week we considered an end. We considered the end of shame and of guilt and of condemnation. In His first advent, He abolished sin, guilt, and separation through His death on the cross, through His triumphant, victorious, bodily resurrection from the grave. But then He ascended bodily into heaven, where He sits at the right hand of God, and He's coming back again someday. He will return. And as we consider the prophecy of Isaiah 9, what, what we began last week with this idea of the people who walked in darkness saw a great light, we're going to continue as we consider this child who was born and what he will become in the latter end. So you're there in Isaiah chapter 9. We read last week in verse 2. Let's pick up there in verse 2 again. The Bible says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Let's continue in verses 3 through 5. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, 
and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppression as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warriors with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. An interesting set of verses to read on a Christmas Eve morning as we consider Jesus Christ. We see a shift here, however. Remember that, that concept in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 of the people walking in darkness and then seeing a great light. We see that same concept found in verse 3. A shift from darkness to light of people who had multiplied their, their numbers but not their joy. They had been multiplying in numbers, but their joy was, was, was limited. Their joy had remained small. They, they walked in that darkness. However, then, we read, they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The joy increases dramatically in this day, in these days that Isaiah is speaking of, in these days when the darkness when the light breaks into the darkness, in these days when, as we'll see in verse 6, when there is a son that is born, when there is a king that is given, the joy will begin to multiply as well, not just the numbers. At that time, they will suffer what we might call an embarrassment of riches, as in the day of harvest when you're joyful because there's so much being brought in and you see all the fruit of your labor and you see all the fruit of the year. This embarrassment of riches rooted in the yoke of the burden of their sin and of their struggle being broken. And he likens it to the days of Gideon. When in the days of Gideon, the people were sorely oppressed under the hand of the Midianites. And God calls Gideon. And he calls Gideon to get a force together to fight the Midianites. And he get, gathers a great force and God says, there's too many. If this size of a force goes against the Midianites, you'll think you won the battle. I want to win the battle. So they pare it down. And they get down to just 300 men. And yet with those men came a dramatic victory that overthrew the power of Midian. Broke their power. Such a time is described here again. So great will be the victory in this day, the Bible says, that the warrior, every battle of the warriors with confused noise, the garments rolled in blood, all of it will be burning in fuel for the fire. That all of the weapons of war, that all of the garments uh, that, that are covered in blood from war, that they'll all be thrown into the fire because you don't need armor anymore. You don't need weapons of war anymore because peace is coming. That's what we read in these three verses. And what we're reading is a transition from bondage to freedom, from war to peace, from darkness to light. And the question is in Isaiah 9, what would bring about such a transformation? What could cause such a dramatic change in the hopes and aspirations of people? Well, it's not a what as much as it is a who. Who would come? A great leader who would do great things. And we read about this leader in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it 
and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The thing that will change is that a king would be born, a king who would make everything change, who would take up that mantle of ruler of his people. Last week we considered what this child would provide within the context of spiritual darkness being made spiritual light. This took place at the cross. On the cross, Jesus bore the shame. He bore the wrath. He bore the sorrow so that we would not have to. That's why we can sing joy to the world. That's why we can listen as the ladies played Ode to Joy. That's why we sing of crowning him Lord of all. Because he has taken us out of darkness and placed us into his light. And it is a joyful thing. And it is to fill us with joy. It is to fill us with peace. This child, Jesus of Nazareth, based on what we learned last week, is called Savior. He is called Redeemer. He is called our friend. But this child was always intended to be a king. And one day he will put on that kingly mantle and he will finish the job that he had begun the night he was born. We pick up with a little bit of the account of Jesus' birth and his childhood. We actually pick up in Jesus' childhood, a year to a year and a half old, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. The Bible says Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Herod died somewhere around 3 or 4 BC. And so that would be around the time, uh, a little bit before that, where Jesus was born. The night of his birth was very sparsely populated. It was populated only by Mary and Joseph, Jesus being there, and the shepherds who had been announced uh, unto whom had been announced his birth and came to see this child who had been born by angelic proclamation. Mary would, we would understand, have remained in Bethlehem for approximately 40 days until her purification was accomplished. We learn about this in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says this, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days, according to the days of, her, of the separation of her infirmity shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day of the flesh, uh, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, and she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. She shall touch no hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. So the Bible says that, that Mary was unclean for seven days. Well, Pastor, what does this have to do with the account? This is, this is a pet peeve of mine, so I hit it every year. So just follow with me here a little bit. She's unclean for seven days. And then after that seven days, they circumcise Jesus, she, as every male would be on the eighth day. And then she's unclean for 33 more days, a full 40 days. 
that she is unclean seven days before the circumcision, 33 days from the day of circumcision on, that the mother is unclean, she could not enter into the sanctuary. And this was important because she needed to enter into the sanctuary because she was unclean and she needed to be cleansed. They also needed to redeem the man-child. So we read in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation unto the priest, who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the, from the issue of her blood." This is the law for her that hath born a male. And then I skipped the female part since it doesn't pertain to our lesson this morning. Um, or for a female. And if she be not able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtles or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering and the other for the sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her and she shall be clean. So I give you this foundation because this is what happens in Luke. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. The Bible says, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, so 40 days, if it had been a daughter, of course we wouldn't be reading it in, in, in the Word of God because it wouldn't have been Messiah, but if it would have been a daughter, it would have been 80 days um, for the purification. That's the part we skipped. But for her, it was 40 days. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of Moses, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Notice that Mary and Joseph offered the pair of, uh, of pigeons or of turtle doves rather than the lamb and the pigeon, uh, indicating that they were not a wealthy couple. They were not a couple of means. They were a poor couple, so they could not afford the lamb, so they brought the extra pigeon in place of the lamb. Within the temple, in their time in the temple, we see two people come up and rejoice over Jesus. We see Simeon come up, who was told that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then we see Anna come up as well, uh, the prophetess who mentioned Jesus as being the Messiah. And then we read in verses 39 and 40, And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned unto Galilee, to their own city Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So following the 40 days required for Mary's cleansing and Jesus' redemption, the Bible tells us that the couple returned to Nazareth, not to Bethlehem. They returned to Nazareth. And there the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, I return us to Matthew chapter 2 where we learn about these wise men. These wise men, they come, and when they come, they're asking to find the one who is born king of the Jews. Herod is not terribly familiar with the prophecies surrounding this child. And so he calls his scribes and his Pharisees together, those that would know, and he says, what is the prophecy of the Messiah that would come? And they say, well, when Messiah comes, the Bible says, and they quote the scriptures, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. 
When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel." So the chief priests and the scribes, they knew that Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. The wise men from the east, most likely having been, in my, my theory is that they had been men who, all the way back to Daniel, who was, the, who was the chief wise man in Babylon some 500 years prior, Daniel had probably taught them of the Messiah that would come, being the chief of their people. And um, they in the east knew of this Messiah. They were searching the stars for the sign of his coming. The star appears. They begin their travels. They get to Herod. They ask for him. And Herod consults the, the scribes and, and um, the priests. And they say he would be born in Bethlehem. Verses 7 and 8. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. So Herod inquires when the star appears. We find later, based upon the fact that he tries to kill every child two and younger in the region of all Judea, we find that most likely it, the star appeared some year, year and a half, maybe two years prior to when they had arrived. And so him having that time frame now of when the star appeared, by implication, it seems as though Herod understood and the wise men seem to believe that the star appeared when Jesus had been born. He sends them to Bethlehem to find the child. However, if we trace the text, Jesus was not in Bethlehem. Forty days after... Jesus was born, they went to Jerusalem, they dedicated him in the temple, and then they returned to Nazareth, where Jesus would grow up. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it, when we read verses 9 through 11. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Why would the star need to be there if he was still in Bethlehem? Indeed, that's where the scribes and chief priests told him to be. But the child was not in Bethlehem. The child was in Nazareth. So the star appears to redirect them from Bethlehem to Nazareth, where at this point Jesus is a year, two years old, somewhere around there. You notice that they didn't find him in, in a stall or in a cave. They found him in a house when they arrived. And there they worshipped the young child and gave him these gifts worthy, fit for a king. And I mention that every year because it's a part of the, the, the Christmas account, which is oftentimes muddied where you, know, you see the wise men there on the night of his birth, they weren't. Or you see them follow the star to Bethlehem or whatever the case may be. It's still often taught. But if we're being precise, that's very likely not where Jesus was when the wise men found him there in Bethlehem. Most likely he was in Nazareth living with his family. To summarize the rest of what we know of Jesus' childhood, 
God warns Joseph in a dream to flee to save the child, for indeed Herod will in a moment uh, de destroy all the, the, the young men, two and under in Israel. Herod finds that the wise men did not return to him, and he does that. He kills all of the males two years and younger in Judea. Jesus remains in Egypt with his family until Herod is dead, and then they return to Nazareth, where Jesus grows. The wise men knew Jesus to be king. Herod knew Jesus to be a king. Simeon and Anna knew Jesus to be king, and a king he shall be. And that's why I wanted to draw this out this morning, because we see in these wise men bringing their kingly gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, gifts suited for a king, gifts which were given unto him because he is the king that was born. And this is the time yet to come, yet still to be proclaimed, when Jesus will be that king. What kind of a king will he be? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 says that he will be a king that is called wonderful. Wonderful is one of the English words in our language which has really lost its meaning, hasn't it? Uh, it's a shame that some of these words, these, uh, uh, these words that are meant to proclaim something truly special, truly amazing, uh, have been watered down to become everyday words in our vernacular. Wonderful, awesome, spectacular. These are some words that because uh, they, they are used so prevalently have really lost any meaning in our language today. But this word wonderful means to excite wonder admiration or surprise. It's intended to describe something or someone who is absolutely unique, out of the ordinary, excellent, above par. Something different enough to cause everyone to pause and to truly take notice. And in relation to that little baby born in that manger in Bethlehem, the Bible does not simply say that he would do wonderful things, but that he would be called wonderful. When we speak of names, we often talk about a name as what we call one another, but as we think of the na a name in Scripture, a name in Scripture means far more than that, right? It encompasses a person's identity. It encompasses uh, a, a person's character. And we still use the word name in that way today. If we say that a person has a good name in their church or a person has a good name in their city or a person has a good name uh, among a certain group of people, that means he has a good reputation. Right? When people are given particular titles, doctor, teacher, whatever it might be, oftentimes that title is not just a title, but it's, a, it's, 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 res it's out of respect. He's given the name, the title, wonderful. It is a very part of his character. Jesus, unlike any other savior or king that has ever lived, he will be exclusive. He will be set apart. He will be greater than all. He will be a, above all. And to this end, the Father has given him a name which is above every name, and his name is Wonderful. And so we echo the words of David. What he said in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 20, O Lord, there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Our Savior has already done wonderful things. Our Savior who has died on the cross for our sins is already wonderful. But He's coming again. And He's coming as King. 
and this child, this son that is given, the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called wonderful. He will also be called counselor, one with wisdom and understanding, both able to uh, advise and willing to advise others, a teacher, a guide with insight, with skill. He stands not just as a counselor, but he stands as the counselor. And so we would read in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 through 15, who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge? and showed to him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the aisles as a very little thing. He is wonderful. He is counselor. There is not one who has instructed him. He is the all-knowing. He is the all-understanding God. He does not just stand among kings. He stands above Kings. He comes not to usher in more of the same. He comes to usher in something new, something greater, something truly wonderful. He is not simply a man with wisdom. He is wisdom itself. His name shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called Counselor. His name shall be called the Mighty God. That He is God, I'm taking for granted this morning. I'm not going to spend time today proving that Jesus is God. We did that a little while ago. This is probably pretty good proof in and of itself that the child is born is called the Mighty God. So we're not going to spend our time proving that Jesus is God. Uh, Jesus is God. And um, the, the text tells us that clearly. But I'm going to focus on this concept of Him being the Mighty God. Psalm 24, verses 8 through 10 says this. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. And He is the King of glory. Selah. Might brings a level of comfort and security, doesn't it? The United States is a superpower, a world superpower. As such, there is some level of security that comes with that. That when you hear about the things that are going on in the world and you hear about North Korea and uh, the, the threats that they would make toward us, there, there's a part of you that says, wow, that's pretty bad. But then there's another part of you, perhaps, that almost can't fully take it seriously because of the extreme amount of power and technology and capacity that the United States military has. The United States spends more on their military in a given year than some countries have in their GDP. Might brings with it confidence. So when the Bible describes this child, this child who grew into a man and in his countenance was nothing that anybody should be drawn to him, and who deferred and who opened not his mouth when he was being bruised and smitten, and who went to the cross and humbled himself before the authorities of men. And when we see our Savior this way, we see him in his humility. We are tempted to forget that he's coming again, and when he does, he's coming in might. And that the same Jesus, who left in humility, is the mighty God. It's veiled, 
but it's there. And He is the mighty God. And this brings confidence. This brings security. And this brings peace. Imagine a day when we live under the King of glory, strong and mighty. When we live under the mighty God, when the government is upon His shoulder, your King is a mighty King unrivaled not only in wonder and in wisdom, but unrivaled in might, unrivaled in power. This is your Savior. He is the mighty God. In this name we find the fulfillment of the promise made to God in Isaiah 7, a promise in the person of Mary and in her Son. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, we see this promise spoken of. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. But God with us here, as we link it to Isaiah 9, not just God with us, but the mighty God is with us. People spend their whole lives searching for God longing for a personal relationship with the one who is their creator, and yet the Bible says God came to be with us. He became a man, but even more so, He will be with us again. It is promised. He will be with us again. Jesus said it in John 14, verses 1 through 3. He said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Take these verses and stick them into the context of Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. This is the one who's coming back for you. This is the one who's coming back for you. This is the one who has gone to prepare a place for you. The wonderful, counselor, mighty God. Fourth, the everlasting Father. That Jesus and the Father is one. Again, I will not substantiate this uh, fully. 1 John 5, 7 and 8 tells us this. Jesus said it himself in the Gospels. That concept of everlasting Never a beginning, never an end. Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13 tells us, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work shall be, as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. God with us. He promised to return. He promised to receive us unto Himself, that where He is, there we may be also. But He is not a man of time. He is the God who is beyond time, who stepped into time to save us from our sins. He died, He rose again as our timeless Savior, as our everlasting Father, the King which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Fifth and finally, in regard to His name. He is wonderful. He is Counselor. He is the Mighty God. He is the Everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. Paul quotes several Old Testament passages in Romans chapter 3. 
And as he does so, he describes man this way. Verses 10 through 18, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together. They are together, excuse me, become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul quotes several different Old Testament scriptures here. But I quoted Romans 3 to bring together this concept. The link between sin and the sorrows and the ravages of the life in which we find ourselves in. As we look into the depths of our own sinful heart, we recognize that within us, that is within our flesh, dwells no good thing. But we know this as well as we look at the state of the world. The world longs for peace, doesn't it? The world longs for peace. Every president for how many decades now has campaigned on the promise of bringing peace and stability to the Middle East. World War I, the war to end all wars. The war that would finally settle things and bring about peace, only to be the staging ground for World War II. Wars are constant. Fighting is constant. Evil is constant. And people look around and they say, there has to be a better way. Why can't people just get along? Why is there no peace? For all of the desire within the human heart for peace, the way of peace is absolutely unknown to mankind, isn't it? The way of peace have they not known. Man wants it, but he does not have the means. He does not even have the frame of reference by which to achieve it. A man does not even have a frame of reference per, for peace. It doesn't even fully compute. And yet there is coming a day where the Bible says, in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up unto the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The Lord will one day rule and reign. And when He rules and reigns, the Bible says there will be peace. They will beat their swords into plowshares. They will beat their spears into pruning hooks. Man has no capacity to find peace in himself. As a matter of fact, the one group that claims this symbol of beating the swords into plowshares is the most violent group that we've ever seen bearing history through the evils of communism. Millions, hundreds of millions of people dead for a group that's trying to beat their swords into plowshares is what they claim. Man sees it, they want it, but they don't know how to get it. We know how to get it. 
The book tells us how to get it. We know when it's coming. Because there was a child who was born and he was laid in a manger and he didn't come at, at, in, a, in a kingly procession and he didn't come to pomp and circumstance. And the ones who rejoiced over his birth in that night were lowly shepherds who resided outside the city of Bethlehem. And he would grow and nobody would really care and nobody would know. And then he would live and he would proclaim a message that the king is coming, that the kingdom is coming. And as he proclaimed this message... Some would follow him. But they would follow him until the day where he was crucified. And then they were so confused. Is this the one who just the week earlier they had proclaimed, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord? Is this the one who was to be their king? But he didn't stay dead. He rose again in victory over the grave. And then after teaching his disciples... Just before Pentecost, his followers say, Lord, now will you restore your kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or the hour, but go and be a witness unto me. And he ascends up into heaven, promising that the kingdom will come when the Lord's timing is at hand. And on that day, peace will come. And on that day, man will not learn more war anymore. This child became a man to lead us not just into salvation, not just into reconciliation, not just into wisdom, but to lead us into the way of peace. And of the increase of his government and of the increase of his peace, there shall be no end. And his kingdom will be established with judgment and with justice. And some 2,000 years ago, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And there he spoke with a virgin who was espoused unto a man named Joseph. And that virgin's name was Mary. And he said unto her in that day, Hail, thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And then he would say in verse 30 of Luke 1, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and shalt bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There shall be no end. The child whose name would be count Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, was announced on that day, born nine months later, would come to a people who walked in darkness to shine unto them a great light, who came, in the words of Zechariah, uh, in, in Luke 1, verse 79, to give light to them that sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. He has purchased that peace with His own blood. He has saved His people from their sin and their guilt and their alienation from the life of God. But there is coming a day when that child, now a man, will return for his own. And as we celebrate this holiday every year, which we call Christmas, we do very little of value if our focus only remains on the baby in the manger. Because that baby became a man. And that man climbed up Calvary's hill and he bore your sin and he bore 
my sin. And the Bible says, as he hung up upon the tree, that he made his son to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Because you can't get to heaven on your own. Because I can't get to heaven on my own. Because we have been separated from fellowship with God through our sin. Jesus Christ came and paid the debt. He paid for our sins so that we might have a relationship with the Father. So that we might become a part of his kingdom. So he died. And he was buried. The Bible tells us three days later, he rose again in victory over the grave. He rose bodily into a resurrected body. Sin could not hold him. Death could not hold him. Could not keep him. And because he claimed victory over death, and because he claimed victory over sin, when he promises that he, has, he will return and bring us back unto himself, that where he is, there we, we may be also, there's weight to that promise. Because when we die, well, death can hold us, can't it? But death couldn't hold him. He has authority over death. And so he can raise us unto himself. And sin, sin's a powerful foe. Sin is powerful in our lives. We all feel it. We all know it. We all know how powerful sin is. And yet Jesus conquered sin. And he conquered it for us. And when you see that baby lying in the manger at this time of year, you should also see the man hanging on the cross. And as you think of the man hanging on the cross, don't let it end there. Because the man that, that was hanging on the cross and the man of the empty tomb will one day come again. And the first time he entered Jerusalem, he entered in on the donkey to the proclamation of Hosanna. The next time he enters, he's entering on a white horse. He is entering ready for battle. He is entering to deliver his people. He is entering as the victorious king. And on that day, he's bringing his people with him. And unto us that child was born. And unto us that son was given. And there's coming a day when the government will be upon his shoulder. And there's coming a day when of the increase of his peace and of his government, there shall be no end. And the question for us is, are we on his side this morning? First, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? When he comes back, is he coming for you? Are you one of his own? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? But secondly, to those who are in Christ this morning, are you preparing for the day? He is going to return. He's, going to, he's coming for you. It may happen soon. It may happen later. We don't know God's purposes any, any more than anyone else. God knows. Are you preparing? Are you living today as a child of the King? Or are you living as a pauper, still under the ravages of the sin that you've been delivered from, still within the context of this world that Christ came to save. That babe in the manger, that Savior on the cross, that victorious resurrected Lord 
Let's remember him as well as our coming king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, because Jesus wasn't born just to live. And he wasn't even born just to die and to live again. He was born a king. And one day he will take the fullest extent of his authority and he'll be king forevermore.